In 2 Corinthians 1.3, Paul calls God the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, and then goes on to say, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. Now, I'm sure that these Corinthians suffered a great deal because of their own sins. But the apostle doesn't even mention this now. Evidently, as these believers went out on their way in pride and greed and some even in immorality, before Paul had written his first letter to them, God said, as it were, what these people need is some persecution. Remember, this church had been started in a synagogue and had then moved next door into a Gentile home and left in the synagogue those who did not believe. But the conduct of these Gentile believers didn't impress the Jews next door, you may be sure. For this reason, God gave the Corinthians all the miraculous signs that we read about in 1 Corinthians, tongues, healing, prophecy, and so forth, so that those who observed them had to acknowledge that this new church was indeed a work of God. But as the Corinthian church grew, its conduct grew worse. Would this not tend to disgust those who are out-and-out unbelievers? And so the members of this church, who would have been the last to willingly and joyfully suffer for Christ, tasted of these sufferings in spite of themselves. People persecuted them just because they were Christians, even inconsistent Christians. Outsiders hated them. One can imagine some unbeliever pointing at them and saying, What? They? Christians? And so their persecution was, by the grace of God, also discipline. They were being spanked, if you please, for their inconsistent and careless behavior. Now, beloved, the Bible has much to say about this subject of discipline, and we all need to learn the lesson. The church needs to learn it. Individual Christian parents need to learn it. Some churches display Corinthian behavior, but the offenders are never chastised like the Corinthians, never reproved as Paul rebuked them. Many parents fail to train and chastise their children when disobedient, and soon reap the sad results. This is so even when the children have grown up, for many a father fails to correct his son when wrong on the basis that he is my son, the very reason he ought to check him. For this Eli broke his neck, you'll remember, and died. Shortly before his death, God had sent a prophet to warn Eli, saying, Why do you honor your sons above me? But Eli failed to heed the exhortation and was cut off by God. He had failed to rebuke his wayward sons. 
he had turned a deaf ear to the prophetic declaration, The Lord God of Israel saith, Them that honor me I will honor, and them that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. This narrative, by the way, you'll find in 1 Samuel chapters 2 to 4. It's very interesting. You should read it. (coughs) So, pastors who have just been going along with your wayward congregations, parents who have just been going along with your children, learn this important lesson and practice it even when they're grown up. Eli's two sons were grown men, yet God rebuked him for not rebuking them. You see, God says to pastors too, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. Just because we're dealing with adults, that doesn't mean that we should not in love uh, check them when they're wandering from the path of God. As a father, my dear friend, you have a great responsibility. You have greater experience than your son. You can better see the, the pitfalls toward which he is headed than he can. So you owe it to him to tell him when you feel that he is departing from sound doctrine or conduct. This process of discipline is, uh, of course, best begun when the children are young. Proverbs 23:13 says, Withhold not correction from the child. If thou beatest him with a rod, he shall not die. Now granted, children of that day were probably more robust than children are today. But make this the back of a brush, the sole of your shoe, or a belt, or whatever. The lesson still comes out loud and clear. Discipline him. And the next verse says, if you do, you'll deliver his soul from hell. Proverbs 29:15 says, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself bringeth his mother to shame. Ah, don't tell me that you love your children so, and that's why you don't discipline them. If you really love them, you would discipline them. And if you really loved your older children as you should, it would not be merely a matter of sentimentality. No, you would check them when you feel that they're going in dangerous paths. Paul did not rebuke the Corinthian believers. Indeed, God did not chasten them in anger. 1 Corinthians 11.32 says, When we are judged... We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. I don't think that means uh, that God would condemn us, but that the world, other people would condemn us. That they'd say, well, he's no better than they are. That an unsaved man might say, if he's going to hell, to heaven, then I certainly am, because I'm a lot better than he is. Ah, uh, don't let the world uh, be able to be in a position to condemn you that way. So he says, God, when he judges us, he chastens us, that we should not be condemned with the world. And he puts it so beautifully in Hebrews 12, uh, 5, 6. Let me read a few verses here. Verses, verse 5. He says, uh, My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Verse 7, If he endure chastening, God dealeth with you as sons. For what son is he that the Father chasteneth not? 
Verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them that are exercised thereby. Isn't that beautiful? Now back to 2 Corinthians 1. Remember, their discipline came to them in the way of persecution. Persecution for being Christian believers. I say inconsistent ones, and that's perhaps uh, largely why their persecution came. As a true father, Paul does not even mention the word discipline here, however, but rather the words affliction and tribulation, which he himself had suffered for Christ willingly and lovingly. And he shows how such sufferings bring forth precious fruit. Listen here, verse 4. God, he says, comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble by the comfort, the same comfort wherewith we have been comforted of God. How he diverts their attention from their past waywardness and sin to better things, to show them how the things that they have suffered are given by God so that they might be able to comfort others who are in trouble. Verse 5, For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. We're able so, so generously and fully to comfort others because we've been through such trouble. Well, notice particularly, please, that little uh, phrase in the beginning of verse 5, the sufferings of Christ abound in us. He doesn't say this to them, but his sufferings were the result of his love for Christ, not of his waywardness. And these sufferings had abounded. He knew what it was to suffer much for Christ. In the same epistle here, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, from verse 23 almost to the end, he gives us a list of these sufferings, the sufferings which he had by then endured. Listen. Verse 23. <clears throat> Are they ministers or servants of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, save one. You see, the Romans said that the lictors uh, were not allowed to give any... Uh, uh, condemned man, 40 stripes, that, that would kill him. Never go as high as 40. So this time, five times they went to 39 in Paul's case. Think of it, almost killed him. Thrice, he says, I was beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, Beside those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, 
the care, that heavy burden of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? So he knew, as he says in 2 Timothy 2.9, what it was to suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds. And the result, oh, listen to the result. Verse 5, now I'm going back to 2 Corinthians 1, verse 5, as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. We are able so fully to uh, understand the sufferings of others because we have suffered so much. Verse 6, whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, not salvation from the penalty of sin, but salvation from their terrible problems, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so ye shall also be of the consolation. Ah, this is all part of the grace of God. Christ died our death, paying the penalty for our sins. And now we who have trusted him as our Savior and Lord are saved and eternally safe. It's just for this reason, just because we are now God's dear children, that he chastises us when we go astray. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And if you are not chastened ever, says Hebrews 12, you are not his children. A wicked and depraved man once came to me as a city missionary and proclaimed his displeasure with God because he said, he never hears my prayers. At this I couldn't refrain from replying, why do you ask God for help? He's not your father. He owes you nothing. You're living like the devil and for the devil. Why don't you ask him for help? Ah, my dear friend, before you have a right to cry to God for help, you must be his child. John 1, 10 to, 3, uh, 10 to 13, I should say, says this, Christ was in the world, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to be called the children of God even to them that believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Have you received Christ as your Savior? Have you been born of God? Are you his child? Paul, by divine revelation, goes even farther to show that when we believe, we become God's children in Christ. Ephesians 1, 7, he says we're accepted in the Beloved One. In fact, he says we are made to be accepted in the Beloved One. And Colossians 2, 10, he says we're pronounced complete in Him. Thus, the church of today is called the body of Christ. It is not the same church as the church of Pentecost or as the church in the wilderness of which we read in Acts 7. 
Ah, no, the church which began with the raising up of Paul is called the body of Christ. He the head, and we the living members. And it is Paul alone who writes us about the church, the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he tells us that we enter this church not by any human ordinance, any physical rite, but by the working of the Holy Spirit. For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles. There you get the feel of the real meaning of baptism. There are many baptisms in the Bible, at least a dozen. There's the baptism with or into the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. There's the baptism with fire. That's the unbelievers will experience that. There's baptism into Christ, uh, Romans 6, 3. There's the baptism into his body, which really belong together by one spirit or we baptized into one body. There are many baptisms, but the baptism which make us one uh, in Christ with the other members of his body is the working of the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, who was the baptizer? The Lord Jesus. He said, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. John the Baptist said, I baptize with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And he did. On Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit came down and the Lord Jesus baptized the believers in the Holy or with the Holy Spirit. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. But today, it is just the opposite. We do not work these miracles today. They are not in the program of God for today. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 says that whether there be tongues or prophecies or the gift of knowledge, it'll all vanish away and three things will abide for this present age, faith, hope, and love. You show me a church that has an abundance of faith and of hope, that is Bible hope and love. Oh, you have a full church if you only have 15 present. Well, the great truth of baptism then is complete identification with, and we have by the Holy Spirit been baptized into Christ. That's just the opposite from Pentecost. We're not baptized into the Spirit by Christ anymore, but God has raised up Paul. He set aside his kingdom program with all its signs. He raised up Paul, the chief of sinners, saved by grace, to proclaim salvation and the exceeding riches of his grace to Jew and Gentile alike. And so Ephesians 2.16 says that we both are reconciled to God in one body by the cross.